Tonight's scripture reading is from Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good evening. It's good to see you all. Glad you could be here. If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, normally, I do a lot of the preaching, but the last couple weeks, I quit. I'll be back again next week. Um, partly because we had Eric here last week, who did a great job, and today we get an opportunity to hear from Justin Anderson, which we're going to have a blast doing that all day long. It's been absolutely amazing, and get a chance to hear J Justin preach uh, throughout the week, um, throughout today. Anyways, First thing I want to let you guys know is we've been having some power issues. So a couple things. Nursing mothers, when you guys go to the nursing mother's room, there will not be an opportunity for you to listen to the message or see it on the screen because that's not working. The, the same um, information applies to nursing fathers as well. So you guys can't go in there either. Um, or weird college kids, okay? So um, from there, also when it comes to the music, when you see the screens, that, uh, when we put on the Slurman slides, you see the scriptures as well as the music. When there's a lot of bass, it actually draws from the power. And so we just want to let you know, as creative as we are here, that's not art that's happening behind there. Um, that, that's bad power circuit. So hopefully you guys understand that. And given the fact, those of you guys who know Justin, that his voice is deeper than most, he sucked all the power out of, uh, of Redemption Tempe. So anyways, uh, some of you guys know Justin. I think the bulk of you know who he is. Justin started this church almost 10 years ago, and we are here because of God's good grace and gifts that he's given Justin. Um, he's a great friend of mine, an incredible leader, incredible father and husband, and maybe one of the best communicators of the gospel that I've ever been able to hear. And uh, I've been doing this the last couple services. By a show of hands, how many of you guys were a part of redemption when Justin was still here? So the, mo the bulk of you guys, awesome. So would you guys do me a favor? It's not doing him a favor, though it would show him appreciation if you guys would put your hands together and give a warm welcome for Justin. Hey. It's good to see you. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been two years since I've been on this stage. Uh, to preach, and that's, uh, that's a long time. So it's really good to be back. I spent a lot of years looking at most of your faces, and uh, you've gotten better looking, <laughs> which is good. Um, I want to give you a little bit of an update uh, on San Francisco because uh, the question I get over and over is, how's it going? Good. <clears throat> so let's get into our text. Um, no, it, it is going really well, and it, it's been an interesting experience for us. Uh, we moved there in April of 2012, and uh, the, the experience has been interesting in the sense that the things we thought were going to be harder have been easier, and the things we thought were going to be easier or we didn't think about much at all have been much harder. And so uh, that, that was really unexpected for us. The ministry side of things that we expected to be really hard and, and a, a really slow process. I mean, we were, we were prepared for, you know, meet 10 people and 10 more the next year and then 10 more the next year. God's really been gracious and faithful with that, brought us some great leaders and some great people, some normal people, which is just rare in San Francisco, uh, I mean, we, we meet people, and Em and I will, you know, leave from going out to dinner with them or whatever and be like, they were super normal. Like, they, like, talked, and we talked, and 
it was crazy, you know, like there's just a lot of weird people there. And, um, and so it, it's, it's been really good. We, we're, we're meeting people and, and, and that, that part of the ministry stuff has been going well. We're in a new building, um, which we're sharing with another congregation, which we got really used to here. Uh, we always prayed and hoped that one day we would have a place of our own, right, and not have to have roommates. And you guys got that after I left. Um, and so we, we spent most of our time, in fact, all of our time here at Praxis Redemption while I was here sharing space, and now we're in San Francisco sharing space again. So I don't know what that's about, but God wants me to have roommates, apparently. Um, and, and, but it's going really well. So um, the part that's been harder than we thought was, was you guys. I mean, we just we miss you like crazy, and we think about you every day. And uh, it, that, that part kind of moving away and, and thinking back to all the years that we spent here and investing in you and, 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 and learning from you and being loved by you. And that's, uh, that's been the hardest part. And so we miss you like crazy. It's good to be back and, and fun to be back up on this stage. Um, I used to hate how high this stage was, um, but now I'm on a stage that's about that tall and I love this. It makes me just feel kind of superior, which <laughs> I've always loved. And uh, it's, it's, just, it's just good. It's good. So I, I'm, I, I'm really glad to be back, but it also makes me sad to, to be here and, and, in a, and I think a really good, healthy, honoring way because um, what we had here was awesome. And, and so I think that sadness is a, a, an awareness of how awesome that was. And, and, and being back and now seeing that it's continued and it's getting better and, and, and Ricardo's leading so well and the whole redemption thing is going so well that um, it, it's just good. It's, it's really good. So I'm glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Um, and uh, I love you a lot. So let's pray and then we'll get into the word. Jesus, thank you for, for so many years of ministry here. I love this place, and I love these people. I'm thankful for what you've done. God, I pray for continued gospel ministry and impact here in, in Tempe. Lord, this evening, I pray that my words would be your words, that you would speak through me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans 8. If you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand, and one of the ushers will bring you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. Uh, if you do own a Bible and you didn't bring yours today, shame on you. Uh, take one and then uh, put it back on your way out. I'm feeling a little sick, so um, I apologize for that. I'm all drugged up. Um, not in the usual San Francisco way, but in a way that I hope will be helpful uh, for for this evening. Um, I, I hate it when I go to other churches and, and the pastor says, hey, preach whatever you want, just whatever's on your heart. I, I hate that. I, I got nothing on my heart. I, I just I just give me a text, and I, I'd rather just keep the, keep the train moving. And, and so thankfully, Ricardo gave me uh, the end of Romans chapter 8. And, and so there's these nine phenomenal verses that the only challenge in doing these nine verses is that you could do a series on these nine verses. I mean, they're just rich, rich verses. And so um, I love it, and it's, and it's a great passage. And so um, we're going we're gonna to jump in at verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, 
He says, what then shall we say to these things? So stop there. Um, he, he's essentially summing up not just chapter 8, but, but really an argument that he started in chapter 1 and is kind of landing in chapter 8. And in chapter 9, he kind of turns and, and goes a different direction. So um, it, it's, we, we've got to be able to understand what Romans 1 through 8 was if we're ever going to be able to answer the question that Paul poses, which is, what then shall we say to these things? Or, or so what? right? Eight chapters, and then Paul goes, okay, so what? And then, and then it's going to give us that so what? But we've got to be able to understand those, those first eight chapters. So we've got about an hour and a half until the seven o'clock service. So let's start in chapter one. Okay. I'll go fast. Chapter one, God hates unrighteousness and has wrath for that unrighteousness, right? That's where we start. It's very uplifting, very, very nice of Paul to start with. God hates bad stuff, and he's got wrath for it. And he's got active wrath, and he's got passive wrath. So God's active wrath is consequences for unrighteousness. His passive wrath in, in Romans 1 is when Paul goes, okay, do whatever you want. Knowing that, that when we do whatever we want outside of God's will, outside of God's view, vision for righteousness, that it ends badly. And so um, Paul starts with God's God hates unrighteousness and has wrath for it. Romans 2, God's righteousness was revealed in the law. And so he's, he's going a little chronologically here. He goes, God gave us a vision for, for what righteousness can look like, for what thriving looks like, for what God's vision for the universe looks like, and he gave it to us in the law. And so we could see that. Romans 3, the bad news, no one is righteous in light of the law. So we read Romans 3 and go, oh, oh, uh-oh. Because Romans 1 said there's, constant, there's, there's wrath for that and none of us live up. Romans 4, we are justified, we have peace, and the promise is fulfilled by faith. And then Paul goes on this kind of tangent for the Jewish audience to go, hey, this isn't a new thing. Jesus didn't roll in and go, hey, it's not this anymore, now it's faith. He goes, no, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's always been about faith. That it's always been about the heart's inclination towards God and our, and our belief in God, our trust in him and his vision for righteousness that draws us into relationship with him. So he goes, God hates unrighteousness. Righteousness was revealed in the law. No one is righteous in light of the law, but we are justified, have peace, and the promises are fulfilled by faith. Romans 5, and this is a big turn. It says, what started with Adam screwing things up is made right by Jesus. That, that's big. That, that's, that's a huge turn in Paul's arguments, and we start to get some of the implications of that. Romans 6, we were slaves to sin under Adam, but now we're slaves to righteousness under Jesus. Romans 7, the law didn't make us sin. It revealed and still does reveal sin. So um, essentially Paul's argument is the law was a bar and showed us what God's vision of righteousness was. And, and it served, a, one of the purposes it served was it revealed how far short of that bar that we actually fall. Okay, so um, the, the law always reminds me of high school basketball, right? Um, when you're messing around playing basketball, you can think you're good. Or when you're jumping around the gym, you think you're good and you think you're athletic. But there's this one great equalizer. And for us in high school basketball, it was layup drill. Okay, and so layup drill, you all line up on one side, half the team on either side, one half's doing layups, and the other half's catching the rebound and, and passing to the next guy. But what was happening in the midst of that layup drill is, in high school, every guy's trying to go up, make a layup, and then slap the backboard, or grab the rim, or like fake dunk it, you know, and, but there's, there's this bar of the rim, and so every time in layup drill, it was a reminder, I'm white, 
I'm white. You know, like it was like, whew, I, ah, no, I fall short every single time. And so whenever I, I hear this, this about the law kind of showing us how far short we fall, I think of layup drill and the constant reminder that I'm not enough. Romans 8. Romans 8, Paul says there's now no condemnation for those in Christ, an implication of the turn from Adam to Jesus, that we are now heirs with Christ because of Christ, that there is future glory, there's something to look forward to in the future in light of present suffering. So there's, there's all kinds of bad stuff happening, but there is something good to come. And all of those bad things, he says, work together for our good. And then Romans uh, 8, 29, 30 kind of lays out the how of, of salvation from God's perspective when he says, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Those whom he predestined, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This was, this was how it's going to go down for kind of from God's perspective. And so all of these things are, are this argument that Paul's building and summing up in verse 31 where he goes, okay, then what then shall we say to these things? How do we respond to all of that movement of the gospel, all of that movement of God in our world? Now what? So what? What then shall we say? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Man, I'd argue, if you can get that line, then, then the rest just kind of falls into place. I mean, that, that line alone, if God is for us, then who can be against us? I mean, there, it, there is so much packed into that one verse. I mean, first, the idea that God is for us. I, I think many of us, when we think about God, I mean, some of us, because of our life experience, think maybe God's against us. And we probably have some evidence for it. We go, well, this happened, and this happened, and this person ran out on me, and this person died, and this person hurt me, and this person abused me, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. So how am I not supposed to feel like, if you're saying to me, God's sovereign, how is God not against me? Some of us maybe wouldn't go that far, but we'd kind of go, well, I think God's kind of neutral, and he's, he's essentially this really fair judge in the sky, and he's kind of weighing out my pros and cons, my strengths and weaknesses, what I bring and what I take away, and he's kind of this impartial judge that just kind of sits back coolly and coldly and goes, yes, pass, fail, pass, fail. But Paul makes the argument that neither of those things are true, that in fact God is for us, that, that God is inclined towards us, that his posture is leaning into us, that God is rooting for us, that God wants us to thrive, he wants us to succeed, he wants us to know we're loved and cared for, and, and that he's walking with us. And, and, and I would just argue, there, there is no way to fully get this until you have kids. So go have a kid. You got 30 minutes. That's plenty of time. We can do a bunch of weddings right here and then just go. <laughs> Get the process started. Because you, you learn so much. He, here's what happens. When you have a kid, 
you want that kid to be the best and the smartest and to thrive and to be protected and to be awesome. And, you, and, and so you're encouraging and you're feeding it, right, generally. And you, you, you're helping it sleep and you're protecting it from, from bad influences. You want that kid. And so this is where, why parents do all the stupid, like, my kid's off the charts and this and this and this. Because you want your kid to be that, right? You're taking pictures of him all the time. He, like, leans his head up and you're like, oh, he's practically walking, you know, like, it's, this is, this is why we do it. So here's the best example of this. Kids, as they become more mobile, become worse. The best stage for a kid is when you can just lay them somewhere and walk away. <laughs> and then you're like, hey, where's Penny? Right where I left her. She's been there for like a week. She's settling in. She's doing pretty good there. She's got a little home. The, the moment they, they start to roll over and do the shoulder turn to roll over and then they start to army crawl and then army crawling becomes real crawling, becomes walking, becomes running, becomes riding motorcycles. I mean, it's just, it's all, it all, it's all downhill. And yet what happens? When your kid is there and he starts to roll the shoulder or he starts to army crawl or starts to, you go, come on, buddy. You can do it. I know you can. Come on, you can walk. Look, you're walking. Oh, my gosh. And you freak out. You, you just took a step, and you look kind of drunk. I'm assuming you're not. And, you know, like, you just, like, you're for them. You want them to thrive. You want them to get better. You want them to grow. You want them to be the best. And you, you, just, you just want them to be great. Paul goes, God is for us. God's going, come on, buddy. You can do it. Say no. Do this. Follow me. Love them. Thrive. You're doing great. You're walking. You look a little drunk. You might be, but let's, you know, like, come on, man. Like, that God's posture, it's towards us. God is leaning into us. He wants, this is, there, there's not a lot. I mean, I've been seeing a lot of you that I haven't seen in a while, and I, I love you, and I shake your hand, but with my kids, when my kids run up, I do this. I, never, I haven't done that with any of you. <laughs> There's not that many that are that short, but even, even so, I'm not going like this. Only my kids get this. Paul goes, if God's for us, who, who could be against us? Who, who of consequence could be against us? And if they were, why would it matter? Who, if God is doing this for us, then who cares who's bringing a charge against us? Who's telling us we're not enough? Who cares? Well, I mean, the, the short answer to his, his question is anyone we value more than God. But, I mean, that's a whole sermon series, so we can't go there. But you see what I'm talking about? Like, this is rich. This, this line reveals so much about, about what we believe about God and, and how we see each other and our role. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. So the, the first implication of these eight chapters, Paul goes, if God's for us, who can be against us? He, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So how do we know he's for us? Paul goes, there's proof. Jesus. Man, if, if, there, if we ever needed an example of like, well, how am I supposed to know God's for us? He sent his son to die for you. Let's start there. 
Let's start there. And then we could keep listing all the, all the other things that he's done for us to demonstrate his love for us, to demonstrate he, that he's for us. But Paul goes, the, he who did not even spare his own son, that looked, he looked out over all creation and said, how can I demonstrate that I'm for them? And not just, not just in some metaphorical sense or some like, I want to I just show them some, some display of love, but to do something that would actually love us in a way that would be effectual, that, that, would, that would benefit us. And he's going, I, I can't think of anything greater than to send my son, the second person in the Trinity, to live and die and to be raised again for them. He goes, and he who did not spare his own son, I mean, he, how would we not believe he would graciously give us all things? In other words, that's the top. Everything falls somewhere below that in terms of difficulty. And if God was able and willing to do the most difficult, the most sacrificial thing to demonstrate his love for us, don't you think he could do the second most? Or the third most, or the fourth most. I mean, he kind of went to the top, and everything else falls somewhere below. So Paul's building his argument. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. This is the the, the back half of of verse 31, where he's now talking about who could be against us. And um, when when Paul's talking about... uh, somebody being against us. He's talking about somebody condemning us or, or, or charging us, saying that we don't measure up. We're, we're not good enough. We're not holy enough. We're not smart enough. We're not powerful enough. We're not rich enough. We're not skinny enough. We're not good-looking enough. We're just, we're not enough enough. And, and Paul goes, if God's saying that, that you're enough, if God is for us and God sent his son to die for us, to demonstrate his love in an effective way, then who can say we're not enough? Right, so there, there's only one person in, in position to have authority to tell us if we're enough or not enough. He goes, who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus? He, he's the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And that, that word interceding is a bit of a churchy word. We don't use it a lot, but it means kind of two parts. One is to step in with. Right, So Jesus saw our lot, our, our, our situation, our sin, our, all of us stepped in with us and then argued on our behalf, intercedes on our behalf, um, uh, uh, cries out to God the Father on our behalf, steps in and, and represents us on our behalf. So he goes, is that guy going to condemn us? The, the one who gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and continues to give today? No. No, of course not. So if he says we're enough, if he says we're enough, then, then who else could tell us we're not enough? Okay, so Paul's building this argument. So, so in, in, in light of all that, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can, can anyone drive a wedge in between us and the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He goes, who, who can separate us from the love of God? The answer, no one and nothing. 
He, he, I mean, he's got this list of things. He says, can, can tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? My list is failure, sin, success, rejection, loss, gain, riches, people leaving, sickness, your past, your present, your future, or anything else. And the answer is nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And no one can separate you from the love of Christ. That's the answer. Why? He's, he's told us why. He, he rooted it back in verse 34 by telling us who Jesus was, the only one who could condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who was in, interceding for us. He, here's what he's saying. If, if the gospel was that one day in the future, God would demonstrate the fullness of his love in such a way that would be life-changing and amazing, then the, the, the message of the gospel, the message of the life of, of the Christian would be get ready for that day. Be prepared for that day because that day is coming. If, if the gospel was that there was something happening today and, and every day, that there was a present tense understanding of it, that we would have to be constantly aware and constantly re-upping and constantly wondering, constantly challenging, constantly trying to step into it. Because that's not the case. It's not about the future and what God will do and what you will do to get prepared for it. It's not about today and what you can do to get ready for it. He goes, it's about the past. It's about what's been done. It's about what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago. And so what, what, because this was done 2,000 years ago, long before you ever showed up on the scene to do anything good or bad, it was when, when that moment occurred, when God demonstrated the fullness of his love for you and, and the fullness of, of love that we could possibly imagine for us, he goes, that, that sealed it. It was done. So no, nothing can separate us, nothing can get a wedge in, nothing can step into it because it's already been finished and sealed. In fact, that's why we see all the verbs at the end of the last section in past tense. Right? Predestined, called, justified, glorified, past tense, done, sealed 2,000 years ago. So this, this creates what is probably one of my favorite theological ideas since this. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more or to make him love you less. He loves you the fullest amount. That he, he died on the cross for you to purchase your life back from sin to redeem you, to reconcile your relationship with him. What, what more would we need? What more could we ask? How, how could we possibly go, okay, that was great, but if I obey more, will you love me more? Love you more than die for you? How? Like how? And, and if, I, if I'm sinning and, and, and rejecting and all that, he goes, I, I've already done this. This is sealed. It's done. I can't undo what's been done. The fullness of God's love has been poured out already for you. There's nothing you can do to change it. No less, no more. So Paul goes, I, I know nothing can separate us because, because it's done. It's finished. The love seals all that's going on in the future. In fact, he answers his own question, verse 37. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? No. 
No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we get an opportunity to fix a little bit of bad bumper sticker theology here about being more than conquerors. And when Paul's talking about being more than conquerors here, he's not talking about conquering your boss or conquering your finances or conquering your girlfriend or conquering, your, conquering whatever problem is in your life. What's he talking about? Conquering the things that would possibly separate us from the love of Christ. Right? I mean, that's, that's the flow here, isn't it? He goes, what could possibly separate? Could, could tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? No, we're conquerors. We conquer all the things that might separate us from the love of Christ. So here's the best part. How do we do that? How are we more than conquerors? Through him who loved us. So catch this. Can we be separated from the love of Christ? No. Why? The love of Christ. Paul goes, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ because the love of Christ. The love of Christ makes it so nothing can conquer the love of Christ. The love of Christ is the reason why nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That is the love of Christ on the front end and the love of Christ on the back end. And and you are just like catching shrapnel in the middle. The love of Christ is the reason you can't be separated from the love of Christ. Here's what that means. And this might be the best news you hear all day. The love of Christ isn't about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. That's something we probably need to hear about a lot of things in our life. But definitely about the love of Christ. It's not about you. It's not dependent on you. It it doesn't ebb and flow with you. You can't stop it. You can't turn up the volume. It's not about you. The love of Christ is independent of you. It's unconditional, which means it it doesn't turn on you. it's, it's, It's about God. It's not about you. It's about the fact that God is love, that his very nature is love. It's not about you. It's about the fact that God works out God's self in love. That when, when by nature you are love, that your work in the world is love. It's not about you. It, it's about God's intention in creation. That he made you perfectly and intentionally and lovingly and creatively. He put a stamp in you and on you that you bear his image. It's about God's intention in creation. It's not about you. It's about God's pursuit of his creation after the fall. It's about him wanting to redeem back to himself his intention in creation. It's not about you. It's about God's mission. It's not about you. It's about God's grace and mercy. It's not about you. It's about God's unrelenting and unconditional pursuit of you, of his creation. It's not about you. It's about the fact that God always finishes what he starts. It's not about you. It's about the surety of the end of God's work in the world. He will restore. It's not about you. It's it's not about you except that you are the object of his love. That's it. 
He loves because of him, but he loves you. Man, that, that can be so freeing. Because, because every moment of sin, every moment of doubt, every moment where we lack faith, every moment where we know we're running away from him, every moment that we know we are acting shamefully and acting in a way that brings guilt, we know that our ebbs and flows don't affect his ebb and flow. That his love is constant. That his love is sure. That his love is about him working out himself in the world. And it's not about you. So, what secures your love in Christ? Love in Christ. And, and you just happen to be in the middle of all that. Okay? So, all of that, eight chapters of Romans, and then 38 verses in chapter 8 leads us to verse 39 where Paul says three important words, I am sure. I'm sure. When, when I started this church, I was 25 years old, and I was sure of a lot of things. I'm now 35 years old, and I'm sure of about 4% of those things. And so anytime somebody tells me they're sure of something, I get a, I get a little nervous but Paul has just spent eight chapters building out this argument for why he is sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth. And then Paul got tired and wrote, nor anything else in all creation. <laughs> he got about six things into that list. He was like, crap, this is going to take a while. Everything else <laughs> will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because I'm sure. I am, I am sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord is not dependent on us, it's dependent on him. The respected theologian Fred Rogers, known to many of us as Mr. <laughs> said this. He said, you know, I think everybody longs to be loved and longs to know that he or she is lovable. And consequently, the greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and capable of loving. It's kind of an incredible thing that God designed us in such a way that the thing we need the most, long for the most, crave the most, is the thing that only he can truly give us. Which is, which is the kind of love that we're constantly pursuing and never finding. Which, which is unconditional love. Love, love that, is, that is not dependent on you or dependent on performance. That's just love. And, and, and more than that, that that's love, um, love of us in the midst of being fully known. Right? I mean, there, there's, there's always that little dance of you, you know someone likes you, but they know, you know that they don't know all about you. Right, there's first date love, and then there's one-year love, and then there's 10-year love, and then there's 20-year love. And by the time you get to about 30-year love, you start to go, okay, this person knows me. 
And then it starts to get meaningful. What's incredible about God's love is that you are fully known to him. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing yet to be unearthed. There's no story yet untold. There's, there's, no, there's no skeleton that you haven't revealed. There's, there's nothing. You are laid bare before God, and yet God says, I love you, which is, which is the thing we crave so much. I, I want to I make a point that, that is admittedly a, a little off the text because um, clearly the, the love of God is about um, our salvation. I mean, it's, it's deeply rooted in these eight chapters. It's absolutely about our salvation. And the love of God is, is, is absolutely about our sanctification. Our ongoing obedience to Christ is rooted in God's love and our understanding of God's love. But if I can just take a step back from those two things and try to get at with you just the simple fact that God loves you. Not, not yet, don't, don't yet go to God loves me unto salvation or God loves me so I should follow him. God loves me and I should obey. God loves me therefore. No, just stop there. Just for a minute at, at God loves me. Like really loves you. Is delighted in you. My wife and I were hiking uh, a couple weeks ago, which we never do, so I wanted to say it. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about our kids and how we were going to raise them and um, talking about how our parents raised us and we've become such incredible Christians. And, and so trying to figure out some of that and how to, how to do that. And I, I made mention to my wife that growing up, we never did family devotions to my memory. We never, there was never time where we got kids gathered around and we sang songs and, and did a Bible study. I, I, I mean, if my dad's gotten up here and told you otherwise, then I'm just kidding. But I, I, don't, I don't remember that at all. And so um, my, my uh, you know, I told M, I said, you know, the, the thing that my parents did that, that allowed me to, to I, I think, understand and accept the gospel was they just loved me unconditionally, as close to unconditional love as, as I think a kid can experience. I mean, I, I never had the sense that my parents' affection for me was based on my performance in school or performance on the baseball field or my obedience or my disobedience. I, I just, I never got that sense. In fact, more than that, I always got the sense that my parents liked to be around us. That they just wanted, they, they chose to just be with us all the time and, and, and to, to really prioritize the kids and the family and, and all that stuff. And it just, it, I don't know if they ever said it. I doubt they ever said it, but I knew it. I felt it. And so when I came to the gospel and, and it was God loves you unconditionally and I saw people go, wait, well, how, how does that work? I, I kind of went, yeah, well, sure. That makes sense. That, that's, how, that's how dads love their kids. That's how moms love their kids. I, I know that. I felt that. I experienced it. And I, and I guess my, my, my point in telling you that story is I, I don't know that we can ever even get to the love of God unto salvation or the love of God unto sanctification and growing in our life with God if we don't just get the simple, enduring truth that my two-year-old son even knows 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because if we don't get that, then God loves me unto salvation, and salvation by grace through faith just becomes an intellectual pursuit, and then we're sitting in that science class, and somebody, you know, disconnects the dots that we've connected in our heads and, and there's not the, the rootedness of love of God in our heart and the experience of just being a loved child of God to, to be an anchor through those difficult intellectual moments. And so we, we can kind of go, yeah, okay, I get it. God, Jesus, you know, died for me on the cross and that, you know, served as justification because he was the substitute for me and I get that. And I, and I think I can understand how um, because of that I should be thankful enough to, to walk and, and, and he's laid out this path and I should follow that path. But if ever, ever something crosses our path that cuts that line then, and we don't have this deep sense of, man, I, I don't know if all those things connect for him anymore, but I just know God loves me. Then, then I think we're in a lot of trouble. And so I, I think there's a lot of reasons why we struggle with that, and I think it's mostly my fault or guys like me who've said, Jesus loves you so, Jesus loves you if, Jesus loves you therefore, Jesus loves you when, Jesus loves you and. And, and you know what? A lot of that's true. There is a Jesus loves you so. There are Jesus loves you, therefores. There are Jesus loves you, ands. But, but we, we often don't take enough time to just stop without all the but and the and and is. So I, without any of that, and just go, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He's for you. And he loves you. And he's never loved you more. He's never loved you less. He just loves you. That's it. So there's hundreds of sermons where you can hear and you need to hear, Jesus loves you so, and Jesus loves you and, and Jesus loves you therefore. But today, you're just going to hear Jesus loves you. That's it. And nothing can separate you from it. And no one, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ because the love of Christ. It's not about you. It's about him. And you just happen to be the lucky object of his affection. He loves you.